just share this from here. Mm -hmm. Oh, there it is. Hurrah! I see myself. Yes, salam. Almost done. Mm -hmm. Come on. Alright. Is that done? That's done. Alright. والصلاة والسلام على رسوله المصطفى وعلى عباده الذين ارتضى ومن بهداهم اهتدى وبآثار أهل المدينة اقتفى وبعد فسلام الله على القوم أهلا وسهلا بكم ومرحبا حوانيينغ لايتس بينبنيدوس أتودوس خشامديد بيبل بخير راغلي آن سواغتم سواغتم رايت سو Alright, Ibrahim, ahlan wa sahlan, doing it, doing it, Omar, Simon, Naveed, ahlan wa sahlan bikum, ahlan wa sahlan, Sham, ahlan wa sahlan, assalamu alaikum, mufti sahib, hal shumach, tourist, khubast, khubast, it's very well, it's very well, right. Come visit NYC. Why not, huh? Why not? Spread, spread the love and <laughs> with it the fitan and fasad. But why not? So, what is going on, people? What is going on? Oof! Zalim dunya, this fitan fasad. I log on to social media and I'm seeing these exposés after exposés. <laughs> Oh, for, 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 buddy, dunya hil rahiye, yaar. There's calamities, tsunamis afflicting people. Yeah, salam. End, end of times, any kazi, end of times. <laughs> right, so there's, oh, 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 oh. On one hand, you've got great, great, buddy, buddy, celebrity scholars being, uh, hounded and pounded and on the other hand you still got that Hasanat saga going on you've got God what is going on <laughs> right so this well I suppose welcome to the world of Muslim drama that's that's the thing people that's the thing uh, smart oh yeah I, I, I bought this I thought let me check it out it's one of those uh, Fitbits um, Versa, I think it's called. I thought, Chalo, dekte, eh? let's, a ver, a ver, let's see, let's see what, what goes down with this thing. All right, all right. You know, here's something. I was speaking to somebody last week, and he said to me, he said, you know, 
I've been speaking to some, he's been speaking to different imams and du'at and people like that over time. And he said some of them, they said, you know, Mufti, there's no way on earth looking at him that he could have this kind of knowledge. <laughs> so first of all, that kind of massaged my ego a bit. <laughs> why lie, people? Why lie? <laughs> you know what it is? I love honesty. That's <laughs> so they said, well, you know, how can it be that this Mufti, look, just look at him. There's no way on earth somebody looking like him could have this kind of knowledge of the deen. So the only way this is happening is because shayateen, like the actual jinn, are whispering to him. <laughs> so the jinn give me this kind of knowledge so I can deceive people. <laughs> and part of my pact with the jinn, uh, this, is, this is legit, this, is, this person actually believed this. I mean, he was telling this person who relayed it to me that part of my pact with these jinn is that I do the devil sign. <laughs> so this one's going out to all my jinn homies out there. Keep it real. Keep it real. Keep the knowledge coming. Keep it coming. <laughs> Tell me some, some interesting gossip. <laughs> I'll do more of these signs. Alright, so, God, hilarious, hilarious. Yeah, why, is it just, you know, the, 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 the Muslim culture, or not all, not all, but much of, many aspects of the Muslim, Muslim culture, why is it just so dumb? Like, I don't, am I the only one that feels this? Or is this like a, a mutual feeling out there? I don't know. But it's so, it's like so bottom set. <laughs> You're like the special needs kind of SEN group you have. Like, I don't know what sets they are now. It's so much like that, isn't it? And it's like uh, <laughs> what I call the sunshine group. You know, the, just crayons and it's okay. Just give them crayons and don't worry. I'll explain this mas'ala to you. Today we're going to colour in the word haram. Haram. Let's colour it in, everyone. <laughs> That's the capacity at which so many religious people operate. They just operate at, Oh, is haram many? Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, well. You know, it's like somebody said, I might as well begin this... Uh, Wah, 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 kadak, kadak, chai, kadak. Right, so, the, some, I might as well begin by addressing, you know, some people, they uh, picked on this issue, so I, I posted one or two, uh, because I can see my reflection, <laughs> I mean, in my mirror image, uh, that I've got that, uh, that on, so I might as well answer, <laughs> I've obviously not taken it off this week. <laughs> So I've got some photos up on Instagram where somebody, a few people objected that, look, Mufti Saab, they said Mufti Saab, this one not nice, you know, <laughs> this one, they said the earring thing for men, 
Toba, 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 toba. Hearing in men, instantly the image becomes blurry and I only see female anatomy. <laughs> so they said, only you, you become a woman if you wear an earring. I thought, acha? Aisa hota hai ka? Is that how it works? <laughs> I'm new to this. You know, I, I'm a naive, simple, sada, <laughs> sadagi pasand log. I, I thought, is that how it works? Acha? Right, so when, when I put that on, I've got to, I've assumed, <laughs> don't assume my gender. I'm now, I can now just walk into the female toilets and say, well, duh, can't you tell? <laughs> duh, mm. <laughs> so people kind of uh, commented saying, uh, so I'm assuming that must work the other way around as well. Deborah's asking that, yeah, so I suppose if somebody takes off the earring, that must clearly just be a man. It must be like. Mm, mm, mm. No earring. Karisab? <laughs> Karisab up? Is that you, Karisab? <laughs> In the dark? <laughs> so this is this is the level at which people operate. That's like full optimum. That's like Einstein level at the religious community level. You know, that's like they're operating at full Einstein capacity there. <laughs> That <laughs> so I thought cello, why don't I answer the question for them? Let's take a look. Right. Right, let's see this. What is this issue of earrings or jewelry for men? Jewelry in general. So people <laughs> you see it's quite interesting that I said to people, let me begin by saying this, jewellery is absolutely permissible for men or women. It's absolutely permissible. Let me just begin with the, the default, you know, the, the, just, I've just, this is, this is what I'm selling. <laughs> this is the product, people. So jewellery is absolutely permissible. It's not haram, definitely not haram, um, and it is permissible men or women. Now, Let's develop the argument slightly. Now, the thing is that different cultures or, and different communities over time have celebrated their adornment, their kind of jewelries in different ways. So whether that be male or female, so they've done it differently. So if you went back, I mean, if we take a look at things like necklaces, now, I don't know, maybe for during certain centuries, women wore necklace, necklaces more than men. Arguably, one could say that. Um, if you take a look at things like bracelets or bangles, let's say, bracelets, whatever you want to call them. I would say that arguably there was a period of time that maybe that was definitely equal and men wore as many kind of bracelets, bangles, if you take it right back to even the Roman times and things like that, you can see from the kind of the history that they would wear these kind of straps and things like this. And even uh, throughout the different cultures that you had. And yes, there's been some communities where maybe women have wore it more and some maybe where men have worn 
these things more. And the same thing goes with earrings and stuff like this. Um, so this is really just a community cultural issue. That's all it is. Now people would say, did the Prophet wear this? Now, of course the Prophet didn't wear it. But that's not to say it's haram. Okay, you know, just because the Prophet didn't do something does not make it haram. Okay, that's the, that's the proper SEN, the bottom set level of arguing that, oh, but did the Prophet do it? But did the Prophet live in England? Oh, oh yeah, he never lived in England. Oh yeah. <laughs> right, but did the, did the Prophet eat fish and chips? Did the Prophet, you know, so it's not, this is not how you argue. Okay, I understand that they're arguing at their best capacity, but they've got to up the game. Evolution has already taken place and, you know, Homo sapiens have developed. <laughs> so, uh, the, the argument is that did the Prophet prohibit, did he say these things are haram in Islam? Now, because you have many hadith where the Prophet refrained from certain things. So, for example, there is something known as a, a kind of like a desert lizard. It's not like a small lizard, it's this reptile um, which some of the Arabs used to eat. So you have a hadith where some of the companions are sitting down eating it. And they offer it to the Prophet and the Prophet says, no, I, I won't eat it. So the companion says, a haramun huwa, is it haram? And the Prophet says, la, he says, ghayra anni lam ajidhu bi Except it's not haram, it's just that where I grew up, people never ate it. And he said, fa'ajiduni a'afuhu. So I find like I have a strong distaste, like I, 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 find my, I find it quite nauseating almost. But it's not haram, so taste is a different thing. But tahrim, the sharia, is a different thing. So when you look at the evidences, you see Allah mentioning in the Quran, for example, enticing men by saying that, look, why don't you strive for a paradise? And in this paradise, in this Jannah, we will give men asawira min dhahab. We will give them bangles and bracelets made out of gold. So the one question here is that, well, if bracelets or bangles are haram for men, let's say, then is God cross-dressing men in Jannah? Is he giving them, is he making them dress up as women? Because that doesn't make any sense. Now you could say, well, the gold aspect, first of all, I, I know I've got a separate clip on YouTube where I explain gold is not haram, but let's say um, if you did believe gold was haram, then that makes sense. You could think, well, okay, he's giving the bangles or bracelets made out of gold. So the gold aspect, but if bangles per se were haram for men, it was something only women wore, then the men would feel really awkward kind of cross-dressing in paradise, that why are we being dressed up as women? <laughs> That's like saying to men, I know gold is haram, but don't worry, when you get to Jannah, we'll give you high heels made out of gold. And the men would be like, <laughs> uh, is this a setup? <laughs> There's 
So the issue is that it doesn't make any sense. Okay, so you have in the Quran seems to intimate that um, things like bangles and bracelets, men did wear them and they were not haram. The gold discussion is a separate discussion whether they were made out of gold. The next issue you see is the famous story that the Prophet said to Saraqa. He said to him that, look, uh, Saraqa, how will you be on the day when I... Uh, when you receive the bangles, the bracelets from um, Kisra, the Persian king, as the dynasty collapses. So he, you can see that, and then in the time of Umar, when Persia, the Sassanid Empire collapses, Umar actually makes him wear them. He gives them to him and he says, I'm the one, I want to actually place them on you. So was Umar radiallahu an cross-dressing him? Was that, is that what's going on? So you see these arguments uh, completely fall apart. Then you have a fatwa of Imam Malik where he's asked about young boys wearing earrings uh, made out of gold. So he says the parents shouldn't make them wear earrings out of gold. Now, if the earrings themselves were haram, then Imam Malik would have said they shouldn't make the children wear, uh, the boys, because he's speaking about boys, the boys wear earrings full stop. Why say out of gold? Right, so that's another uh, argument you have. So you have all of these kind of arguments. Another thing is that a lot of these people who assume these things are haram, they're going by an uber, an ultra, mega generic statement that the Prophet didn't like, uh, he, he didn't like the men who were pretending to be women. And he cursed them. He said that those men who are pretending to be women and those women who are pretending to be men. So this is the hadith that a lot of these people use. And so they now extrapolate and extrapolate based on culture and then extrapolate based on those extrapolations and say, well, anything we deem to be feminine, let's say, uh, in our culture, whatever that may be, we will then deem that to fit in this hadith. But let's just take that argument for a moment. Let's let's run with it. You have in in the Prophet's time many of the companions and many people uh, in the Arab culture. They the men wore kuhl in the eyes, you know, surma. They used to, and they still do. Many Arabs and even many Pakistanis, for example, in Pakistan, they wear surma. The religious people because they think it's sunnah. Although Imam Malik said it's not sunnah. <laughs> <laughs> Imam Malik obviously corrected them ages ago, but still, they think it's sunnah, but they wear kuhl in their eyes. Now, I would say, so, which is eyeliner, and they feel that there's no issue with wearing men wearing eyeliner. I mean, in this society, that would definitely be deemed something that women do, let alone the fact that men wear a thobe. Now, in the West, most people see a thobe as a frock. <laughs> they do. They actually think that's like a dress, like a, a woman's dress, like a frock. They, so they, they, they understand that Arabs wear this in the Gulf. They wear this kind of frock. But, so, but that's, that kind of frock dress is what women wear. I mean, men don't usually walk around in the West wearing a frock. But yet... Men are happy to kind of wear a frock, uh, thobe, 
and they're happy to wear eyeliner. And then they say <laughs> that that's absolutely fine. But God forbid should somebody have a, a, a bracelet on or something. They are clearly a woman. And you think, well, uh, <laughs> okay, my friend, <laughs> you think you think it's time for your medicine? You know, this, 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 this clearly doesn't make any sense. So I thought I'd answer that just to show. I'm not saying people need to do these things, but these things are not haram. And I present an open challenge, open challenge. You know, these uh, people who object to it, take it to your mashaykh. You know, oh, pitaji, take it, to, take it to them and ask them, bring me a verse of the Quran or a clear hadith. Clear hadith, clear hadith. Bring me one. I won't ask you for the second. Bring me one that says it's haram. And, and I can clearly Challenge! This is a challenge from me that you won't even be able to bring one, not a single hadith. You won't even be able to make one up. <laughs> that will catch out as well. So bring me just one hadith. And the fact that you can't, you see me, I refuse to blindly follow the words of men. But others are welcome to do so. If you want to, you can blindly follow your those mashayikh that tell you it's haram. I have no objection. It's your life. Live it as blindly as you like. But as to me, I ask for compelling, conclusive uh, evidence if you have it presented. Cool. So, Allah, Allah, Allah. Somebody said, I just can't imagine him being the imam. Well, I'm not an imam. <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> Who wants to be an imam? I don't want to be an imam. <laughs> I'm very clear. Look, there's no... This is the thing. All these great people you think of in the past, let me just pause. 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 All these great scholars that you think of in the past, Imam Malik, Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Shafi'i. Imam Bukhari, all these great Imams, none of them were ever Imams in their entire lifetime. Never could they be an Imam in a mosque. Ever. Imam Malik, Imam Malik didn't even go to the mosque for 25 years. He didn't, I mean, uh, the last 25 years of his life, he didn't refuse to go to the mosque. But the other Imams who did used to go to the mosque, not a single one of these Imams who you guys all, everybody has heard their names, let's say Ibn Taymiyyah, even though he's not a, I mean, I don't, okay, he's a scholar, I don't consider him an Imam, but chalo, let's say, whoever, all these famous Imams, uh, not a single one of them was an Imam in a masjid, ever. They would never have been allowed. They were never allowed. The masjid Imam was always set by the state. And that, that's as simple as it was. These people never led a single Jummah in their entire lives. <laughs> right? So, you know, when you talk about these great magnificent Imams and these great people, they never led a single Jummah in their lives. Ever. So, 
I mean, it's don't get me wrong. Those people who are imams, I respect them. I think they're doing a great job. May Allah bless them, preserve them. But I have no aspiration to become an imam. It's not my style. <laughs> I don't want to become an imam. So saying that, you know, I can't picture this guy being an imam is cool. <laughs> There's no, no contradiction. <laughs> Uh, hadith right let's take some questions what method do you suggest for finding the true hadith right you've got Mahmat, ahlan wa sahlan shireen ahlan wa sahlan wa alaykum as salam right so the hadith discussion is incredibly interesting you see like I said you've got to understand something <clears throat> that hadith is a consider hadith like a uh, a reservoir a kind of uh, a source of raw material but not all of the raw material that even the ones they consider sahih are actually is actually usable or is it of any value okay a bit like i don't know like finding diamonds i guess you're going to find many things but as you come across them in nature much of it is you can't really use it it's just you know it's unusable so it's in a similar way hadith works in a similar way we have this reservoir of hadith now I do not reject hadith I do believe that hadith do have truths in them but we have to sift through that the hadith must uh, must match it up to this criteria of the three criteria the golden criteria which is that it cannot clash with reason it cannot clash with the quran and it cannot uh, uproot an established islamic principle that so ma lam lam yu'arid al ma'qul wa lam yubayyin al manqul wa lam yunaqid al usul so these three things that it does not go against that is incredibly important Another thing to understand, and I've got this whole thing, I've got a, a video on YouTube, if you haven't seen it, please take the time out and see it. It's called Bukhari Gate. Sahih Bukhari is just a regular book of hadith. It is not on the standard that people have placed it. Okay, Sahih Bukhari has many mistakes in it. It has many problems in Sahih Bukhari. It has many blasphemous hadith in Sahih Bukhari. Not overall, overall the collection of Sahih Bukhari that we have today is about 7700 hadith. Um, but there are a certain percentage which are blasphemous, they contradict with Islam, they in fact disrespect our Prophet, they disrespect other Prophets, they show our Prophet as scandalous. They, there's many, they, there are these kind of hadith in Sahih Bukhari. Now these are clearly mistakes that people have put in there. And unfortunately, the scholars have allowed them to just pass through. And that's because more than anything, the scholars, you see, there was, it depends which scholars did these things. So you see, there was an era that comes, which is the second wave of Muhaddith, Muhaddithin scholars. Muhaddith is a scholar concerned with Hadith. The second wave of the Hadithi project or the Muhaddithin. So the first wave is in the first is in the second century and third century of Islam. So you've got beginning with the people like Imam Malik and those people. They they're the best people. Imam Malik, those people that 
sound as a pound. I mean, that that is the legend, the epic, the heroes of this uh, Ummah. Uh, after them, you have this huge, you know, this, sur this, this kind of surge in uh, Hadith activism. It, it's almost like Hadith but on steroids. So you have the next 100 years a... You know, just a, there's people, ridiculous claims being made about hadith. You know, all of a sudden people now know a million hadith. Where did a million hadith even come from? Uh, let's just be honest. You know, Imam Malik, who was the don of this ummah, he never made such a claim. You know, Yekon, <laughs> you know, who are these people coming a hundred years later making a claim that they know a million hadith? Uh, or two generations after Imam Malik? I mean, this... This kind of stuff, you, so you start to see people exaggerating because they want a stake in this. They, they want to be pioneers. There's a lot of human rivalry going on. There's a lot of competition. People want to make a name for themselves, um, which is all human effort. Um, so this starts to take place a huge, this is the huge wave. So if we consider this, actually, let's consider this the second wave. Because the first wave, the emergence of Hadith Project, is quite sincere. It's very sincere, I would feel. That's according to me. So I would feel that, that like the likes of Imam Malik, the likes of Awza'i, and people like this at that stage, Sufyan ibn Uyayna, this stage is a very, what I feel, the first, this is the kind of like the, the proto-stage. So it's all good and pure and, and kind of like mainly innocent. The second wave you have, which is the hadith on steroids stage that we have, where all of a sudden there's a million hadith. Uh, there's what we call, what I would like to call the Cambrian explosion takes place. Now, with this Cambrian explosion, you have, there's a lot of people making up hadith. Because there's no way that all of a sudden, 200 years after the Prophet, people now have a million teachings of the Prophet, whereas... Closer to the Prophet, they only had a few thousand. So th that doesn't add up, right? So th you, you're definite that there's a lot of fabrication or manipulation and things like this are taking place. Uh, there's a lot of blagging. So even these so-called pious people start to do things like Tadlis. And for some reason, the Hadithi scholars turn a blind eye to Tadlis. Now, Tadlis, some of them, like contemporaries of Imam Malik like Shu'ba declared it haram. Yet, you see, Tadlis is when I know the person I'm transmitting from is weak, but I drop him. This is one type of Tadlis. I drop him and use the other person's name because I know if I use his name, people are going to catch me out. Now, that's just blatant lying. I mean, the, I, I consider that as... That should that I consider that to be like haram. There's no way that you are purposely misleading people about what the Prophet said. Yet the scholars of Hadith seem to accept all these mudallisin, like you know these huge mudallisin, like Qatada. Qatada is like epic as a mudallis, Amash, epic mudallisin. Yet what 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 are they like uh, i think a few a couple thousand hadith of his in bukhari i mean the point is that obviously people like ibn shihab zuhri epic mudallisin of huge epic proportions now 
the, what, so what, some there's a lot of questions here. Why do these this wave of muhaddithin let this go? I think it's because if they didn't, they couldn't. It was part of the investment of the project that they're invested in, because they are invested in hadith. If they chuck out all of these narrations, they're not going to have much to bargain with. They're not going to have many chips like this. So they allow it because they too are a part of this game. Um, I'm not saying they weren't sincere, but I feel they weren't angels the way some people make them out. I feel that they, you know, some of them were aware of what they were doing. Put it like that. They weren't. Maybe they, they justified it Islamically. Like maybe they thought that they're doing it for a, a better cause. So they justified it. As, 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 as religious people do all the time. So whenever people are doing something which others might call corrupt, they will justify it. They'll say, no, no, this is okay because, you know, it's okay. So I read the other day, like, there's a, a famous statement of Imam Ahmed. And I think this statement is, is, a, is, is a tragedy. I think it's one of the, the viruses that have infected this ummah. Uh, and that is that this statement that is transmitted, Allahu A'lam if he actually said it, but many of the Hanabila, like Ibn Taymiyyah says it, uh, says it, sorry, that this, uh, that they say, uh, what is it? Fusaqu ahl sunnah, that the criminals, those who commit sins from ahl sunnah, are awliyaullah, are the friends of Allah, and the atqiyya, or the pious people of the deviants, of the mubtadi'een, right, uh, are from the, the enemies, Allah, and they are from the, the, like they are utterly losers. So it doesn't matter how pious, like what they're trying to say is that regular Sunni Muslims, so long as they are Sunni, they can be the worst of people, but they are still the awliya because they just happen to be born in a Sunni family. And let's say, different sects, whether it's going to be the Jabariya, the Qadariya, the Shia, the whatever they are, the different sects, because they're born in that sect, even if they were really pious people, they are doomed and losers and, and forever they are the enemies of God. This statement, which allegedly Imam Ahmed said, uh, this is the, the seed of the problem that we are now facing. You see, because this sows the seeds of hatred. But my point is, you see, when people can justify things, they use religion. So coming back to the Hadith project, you will see that those scholars maybe justified these things. And sometimes they may have done it on based on what they thought was good reasons. Um, I'll give you an example, actually. This is an interesting case. I was looking at this the other day. And I'll just share it with you, if I bring this up. Now there's, you see, there's a narration, and this will give a little example of what I'm talking about. Um, just one moment, just, here it is. Right, now there's a narration um, which speaks about the, oh here it is. It's in Bukhari, uh, and it's in the Musnad of Ahmad. Now, according to this narration, it speaks of the Prophet as somebody who, before prophethood, 
So Ibn Umar is transmitting this hadith. Now I want you to pay attention to this because this is really important from two angles. One, I want to show how false hadith have entered our uh, resources. And two, I want to show uh, how the hands were at play as sometimes trying to manipulate things. So if you pay attention, please focus uh, at this point. Now there is a hadith in Sahih Bukhari that claims that the Prophet before Islam used to uh, eat meat that was uh, that used to passively participate in pagan practices. So it says that the Prophet used to eat the meat uh, dedicated to Uzza and Lat and, and he would partake in all of this. Um, now what's interesting is this hadith which is transmitted by Musa ibn Uqba from Salim from Abdullah ibn Umar who says that the Prophet ﷺ, he met one day Zayd ibn Amr ibn Nufayl, who's a famous companion, at this place called uh, Baldah. Now he says, and this is before he became a Prophet. Now the Prophet at that place, فَقَدَّمَ إِلَيْهِ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وسلم سُفْرَةً فِيهَا لَحَمْ So the Prophet laid out something with food in there and gave him meat, gave this to Zayd. Right, gave this meat to Zayd ibn Amr. Now Zayd ibn Amr fa'aba an ya'kula minha. He refused to eat from it. And he said, Inni la ala He said, I don't eat from this meat which you sacrifice to your idol gods, your pagan. This is Zayd ibn Amr telling the Prophet this. This is in Bukhari. Right, so, I only eat that which is sacrificed to God alone. He's rejecting the Prophet's food and telling the Prophet, at this time the Prophet isn't a Prophet, he's telling the Prophet وسلم, that I don't eat your meat because your meat, you guys are sacrificing it to pagan gods. Now, you see, this is an interesting example because this hadith is blasphemous. This hadith shows that the Prophet used to partake in idol worship, he used to partake in passively at least sacrificing to the idol gods, um, doing these things. And I'll add to that in just a moment. Now, the interesting thing is this hadith is also transmitted from the same Musa ibn Uqba and going from Salim to Ibn Umar uh, by three other hadiths supporting the exact same wording in the Musnad of Ahmad. Uh, now, what's interesting is Bukhari then brings another narration in Kitab al-Manaqib, which is from transmitting from Musa, but this time the guy transmitting from him is a weak narrator. His name is Fadail ibn Sulaiman. He's actually weak and rejected. Ibn Ma'in, Abu Zura, Abu Hatim, everybody says this guy's major problematic, Fadail his name is. But Fadail changes the wording. You see, Fadail says in his narration that he says, Instead of فَقَدَّمَ إِلَيْهِ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ He mentions, he says, فَقُدِّمَ إِلَيْهِ You see that this food was presented to the Prophet. And in the other narrations in Musnad of Ahmad, they say, قَدَّمَ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ إِلَى And he adds, فَقُدِّمَ And he mentions, إِلَيْهِ to the Prophet. That this food, he switches it. He says that they presented this food to the Prophet. 
uh, either Zayd ibn Amr, which doesn't add up because Zayd ibn Amr wasn't a, a pagan. But that's how the wording is. He kind of switches it to say no, that the verb, he switches the verb to say no, that it's being passed to. So it's not that he passed it, it was passed to. He kind of changes the word um, to show that this was passed to the Prophet and the Prophet rejected it. But the other narrations all seem to suggest, they all not suggest, they clearly state that the Prophet passed it to Zayd ibn Amr, who then says to the Prophet that I don't accept your meat because it's sacrificed. Uh, now there's two things to see here. One, the majority of all transmitters transmitted it like that. That the Prophet was partaking in pagan practices. Now that is blasphemous and it goes against our understanding of Islam because there were many people who weren't partaking in pagan practices. Uh, you have people like Zayd ibn Amr as an example. You have many famous Arabs, Qus ibn Sa'idah, a very famous, uh, you know, somebody who always spoke about the, the Hanafiya, the, the kind of Deen al-Hanif. You had many Christians and Jews that were also present. You had many of these things and influences. So we know that that was not true, generally speaking. Now, what's interesting is some narrator is manipulating the hadith to suit our general understanding. Now, although that's, I respect that, fair enough, even though he's a very weak narrator, but I respect that, and Bukhari's brought it probably because of that reason, just to kind of get a bit of uh, a balance, but... What is evident is he is manipulating. It seems that he's very he's manipulating this text. And it makes, if a person can manipulate this, they can manipulate other texts. So that's an interesting point. And you, you get a few more of these. And I'll mention something here as just a, a token note whilst we're on this discussion. You have uh, Hisham, you know, Hisham ibn Urwa. Uh, who, from him, Haytham is transmitting that the Prophet named his children after the false gods in Jahiliyyah, those who were born in Jahiliyyah. So you have him saying that, uh, he says that those who say Tayyib, the Prophet's son's names were Tayyib and Tahir, he says that they, he says that they've got it wrong. This is Hisham saying this. He says they, this is the names they gave them in Islam. He says their names were Abdu Munaf, Munaf was the fem uh, the goddess, like the servant of uh, Munaf, and in another riwayah, Abdu Shams or Abdul Uzza, the servant of Uzza, the, uh, the, the goddess. And he says the Prophet named them that, but that's because they were born pre-Islam. Now it's interesting, that you see now this obviously clashes with the other narrations, but that's Hisham. The same guy who says the Prophet married Aisha at the age of six. You know, this, this one, big problem, you know. This, <laughs> this is why Imam Malik had a big issue with Hisham. He said, we don't accept what Hisham says. You know, this issue, <laughs> same issue <laughs> from, from the riwayah to do with the age of Aisha. So my point is that, you see, studying the science of Hadith, you can't, I feel that you can't just take a dogmatic approach you have to have a very comprehensive a very analytic evaluative approach in looking at this science uh, in making sure everything adds up and I think a huge amount of this needs to be re-evaluated problem is who will do it <laughs> who will do it
Now, people, let's take uh, let's take some of the questions. Huh? What's going on? What's going on? Are we supposed to ask questions here? Oh, you can. Um, somebody said some Rawi use the word Fulan ibn Fulan. Yeah, they use that sometimes to hide the name. If miracles don't exist, then is there any point in making du'a as Allah won't intervene? Uh, he never has, i.e. no miracles. Um, yeah, but just because some said it's true doesn't mean it's so. Imam Mark is in the house. Ahlan wa sahlan, ahlan wa sahlan, Imam Mark. Right, so... Uh, Right, so I'm just trying to pause some of these so I can read these questions. How do you define Islamic principles? Okay, Islamic principles are those principles that have been established by an overall, what they call an istiqra'i study. And istiqra' means a comprehensive study of Islam. So, so many things point out that from it you can... Uh, you kind of induce this principle that this is a principle in Islam. So, for example, the principle that harm is always harm ought to be removed. Now, that is a principle that al-darar yuzal. Now, that is uh, a principle in Islam. Al-mashakka tajlibu taysir that hardship necessitates ease. This is a principle. So, when you study so many different rulings, this principle definitely is manifest. So, you see that oh, right. This is definitely a clear uh, thing that Islam wants. So these principles in the Sharia, I think by and large, a lot of them uh, are agreed upon by most scholars, but they disagree upon their application. So they might, might agree, in, uh, agree on them in principle, but disagree when it comes to application. So I, uh, uprooting these is an issue. Right, so what else is going on, people? What about hadith brought by Imam Bukhari in Adab al-Mufrad? However, whoever is proud of Nasab, then let his father's private parts be cut off, and then Hassan al-Basri through which so many chains... Yeah, I mean, uh, these things don't seem to be uh, valid hadith, although the meaning of, like, people shouldn't be proud of their Nasab... Uh, that does come through from the teachings of the Prophet that he did kind of, he tamed down the whole Arab uh, obsession with lineage in trying to say, oh, I'm the son of so-and-so, I'm the son of so-and-so. And I think this is really interesting. And I mean, what, what I was going to say is I think what's really interesting is part of my study into Islam revisionism uh, by looking at the claims that a lot of these modern-day Islam revisionists have been making, uh, it's forced me, and there's uh, some people we're working together, there's Mufti Maravia, those of you that know Mufti Osman Maravia from uh, North England, uh, he, he's kind of working with me, we've got a collab going on there, so Mufti Maravia, if you've tuned in, right, you're doing it, you're doing it, right, so... Um, we're collaborating with one or two others on the on these matters and looking into them. It's forced us to reevaluate a lot of what we thought we knew as well and try and weigh things up. So something that has clearly emerged 
seems to be, like I mentioned before, this whole thing of uh, the Arab uh, history pre-Islam. Now it seems very clear that there were, uh, there is a strong rich history, Arab history pre-Islam, that it's important to understand in order to get to the point of Islam and see why things move forward in a particular direction. But from that, we come to learn that there was a huge Arab presence always in the Middle East. This is something which has been heavily undermined by uh, Islamic sources. Maybe not, maybe not intentionally, maybe some parts were done out of ignorance and some parts they just, maybe some people, did, many people did know, but they just didn't feel it was important. I don't know what their motives were, but they didn't, haven't highlighted. So many Muslims think Arabs, Arabia. This is how it was, and then with Islam, Arabs spread. That's actually not true. Uh, it seems that they were hugely, I mean, there was a huge Arab presence in the Middle East, from the Levant right through to Iraq, right down in, and into Arabian Peninsula. But th there were many, many more Arabs. There were millions of Arabs in the Middle East and only a few hundred thousand in the Arabian Peninsula. Most of the Arabs did not live in the Arabian Peninsula. Now that's actually something which, okay, may not make so much of a difference, but it changes the picture of things. So you start to see, okay, that's interesting. Um, and there were a huge, and most of those millions of those Arabs that were in the Levant, which is modern day Lebanon, around the Palestine area, you've got Syria around that area, Iraq, uh, Jordan, all of these areas, uh, that Middle East region was a huge part of it. There were so I mean, they weren't just exclusively Arabs, but there were a huge, a bulk presence of Arabs there, uh, heavily outnumbering the Arabian Peninsula. And most of these Arabs were all Christians. Um, there were Christians, and many amongst them were Jews. Now, this is something that is not mentioned as much or taught well in our sources. Now, once you start to understand that, you then realize why, um, and I want to mention this point, so pay attention, why the arguments in the Qur'an are so addressed to the Jews and to the people of the book. Because, you see, what we didn't realize was the Arabic-speaking people, or people who could understand Arabic, uh, they were by and large the people of the book. But the non-Arabian Peninsula, the non-Peninsula lot were people of the book. And it seems very likely that looking at some of these arguments... So, for example, let me share this uh, argument with you. Uh, people like Patricia Crone, for example, in her... Uh, she, she has a few books, but she raises this argument. Uh, and she has some in-depth... And these people have been doing some really solid... Like, I mean... Boy, <laughs> these people have committed, they committed their lives to Islam. I'm, I'm serious. Not in a, a way to become Muslim, but to study the hell out of it and to find all these problems that they could with uh, the Islamic sources. And they've done a thorough job. And I'm telling you, honestly, they, I mean, I'm not saying that it can't be answered, but what I'm saying is, there are there are some truths to some things that they are saying. It's not like, uh, you know, it's not like an absolute nonsense. 
like some Muslim scholars, most Muslim scholars are not familiar with their works. Uh, no, not Hagarism. I'm not talking about Hagarism, by the way. So Patricia Crone moved on from Hagarism. Hagarism was in the 70s, a movement that was like the prototype where they began by saying, look, uh, let's. So they kept to these principles. They said, we're only going to take from Islam what can be proven through facts, through archaeological facts or through other transmissions or through coins or through writings, inscriptions. We're not going to just take the Muslims' word for it. That was their principle, which they stood true to right till the end. But Hagarism was this belief that Islam was actually an offshoot from Judaism. And it stayed like that. Uh, and later Muslims gave it this spin of a new identity of Islam. Now, some of that they stuck to, but Patricia Crone and, and, these, uh, and some of these other people, they really modified a lot of that argument and people like Fred Donner and so it's not this simple Hagarism like if you read their book on uh, so for example Meccan trade or other books now they have they raise a lot of questions and they seem to have done their homework so one of the questions that they raise is about Mecca and they feel that Mecca is definitely made up by Muslims uh, so this got us looking into a lot of these things and we've been researching. We're still researching this. This is going on. Um, this has been spanning a little while, me and like I mentioned, Mufti Marovi and one, two others. Now, our conclusions so far are that, you see, Makkah, I do believe Makkah did exist, but Makkah was much smaller than we think. And it was not a significant town. Um, it was an insignificant town and it only gained its significance with the rise of Islam. So, and it was nowhere near as large as Muslims thought it was. Like, I think Muslims say maybe it had a population of 15,000 or something. I don't think that at all. I think by looking at the evidence, it would have been a very small town. Um, maybe a few thousand at best. And it didn't it wasn't part i don't think it was part of the trade route i think they probably used to annex themselves to the trade route somewhere close to taif so they would probably meet it somewhere because taif is part of the trade route as was other places medina yathrib and khaybar and these places were but makkah never appears on any of these documents even the i'm talking about the non-arabic documents um so it seems that makkah uh, in my understanding, did exist uh, because I just find it very difficult to believe that it was fabricated. But I do believe that it may have not been as significant of a, of a town as people assumed in later times. So we assumed it was like the London of Arabia. It was nothing like that. I think it was just a small town. Um, and hence the resistance to it because they would have thought, who's this? You know, who, who, who are these people trying to take us over and trying to spread their religion? So that's one thing. And I feel that the Meccan people, when they objected to the Prophet, um, when they objected to the Prophet, they brought down, because the Prophet told them that he was from this line of prophets, these Abrahamic prophets, and uh, that they brought to debate him, 
Because the prophet spends you know, a considerable amount of his life, the majority of his prophetic life, in Mecca, at least 13 years out of the 23 years. Now, they, they would have brought Jewish people, Jewish scholars, down from the other rest of the Arabic-speaking uh, world to debate the prophet. And hence... A lot of these verses that are Makki are actually addressing Jews. Because otherwise, w w people say, well, there wasn't a Jewish presence in Mecca. You see, because this is one of the things that Patricia Crone uh, argues. She says, well, it doesn't make sense. There weren't many Jews in Mecca. So why were some of these... Why were some of these Makki surahs arguing against the Jews? The other thing is she picks up on this point of agriculturalism and she mentions that Makkah didn't have any agriculture. So why is the Quran, the Makki surahs, addressing agriculturalists? So why is Allah saying things like, oh, don't you see there's jannatin ma'rushatin wa ghayru ma'rushatin wa fawake, you know, and there's all these different fruits and you have rumman and you have, you have uh, pomegranates and you have zaytun and you have all these kind of fawake, but Makkah didn't have these things. And then she brings the point that especially the verse uh, in Surah An'am where Allah says, uh, about rumman wa zaytun, about... Uh, about general, you know, what is it, fruits and things like this, but names then uh, pomegranate and olives and states and give from it the day you harvest it. But the interesting thing here, uh, right, right, the, the interesting thing here is that she highlights as well that, but why is the Qur'an saying this when there was no olives in the Arabian Peninsula? And there was no agriculture in Mecca and there definitely weren't olives. In Olives didn't grow in the Arabian Peninsula. They only grew around the Mediterranean and up to the lower part, but not into, uh, not in the Hijaz or below and things like this. There were no olives. So why is the Qur'an saying to give from olives? and addressing them when they this is not an issue and it's naming olives now this would have been because the people they brought to debate the prophet were people from the levant and from those regions from the that arabian from the ghassani kind of like uh, remnant of their dynasties and the and you have the manazira the lakhmids and their dynasty so these two huge major dynasties that were mainly Christian and Jewish that lived in the Middle East, not in the Arabian Peninsula. And they were all Arabs and they far outnumbered the Arabs in Arabia. They would have most likely come to Mecca to debate the Prophet. Now, because we know there is a link between Mecca and the capital, let's say the capital of the Lakhmid dynasty was Hira, which takes on this Arabic script and it's the cultural capital. And we know there is a link between Hira and Mecca. And hence, uh, you have the son, in, the brother-in-law of Abu Sufyan, who brings first the Arabic script that we have today. They we're calling it Arabic. I mean, it was Nabataean, but they, he brings that to Mecca. So my point in this is that uh, there's certain narrations that we find in our tafsir, and you'll find it in Razi's tafsir and another tafsir that they mention that this Surah Al-An'am was revealed in one go. And why? Because it would have been a debate. 
that there was a debate taking place that people were coming to challenge the Prophet, people who were of Jewish background, who knew the Jewish texts, who knew the Prophets of, of old, who knew these things, Christians were coming. So these verses were reminding them that, look, do you even, yes, you do have things, you have blessings from God. Do you even give from the harvest? Do you even, uh, are you even grateful for the, 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 the fruits, the blessings, the risk that Allah has showered upon you? So that was the angle of these ayat. So it's important to know some of these things. I thought I'll, I'll mention some. And another interesting point, um, this is definitely worth mentioning on this, that you see the argument that some of these Islam revisionists are using is that Mecca was reinvented by Abdul Malik ibn Marwan and Hajjaj and his uh, Abdul Malik's son, uh, uh, you've got Walid. And, and these people, they invented and played that role in creating the recreation of the Kaaba in in Mecca. Now, I would say that if that be true, if that be true, you see, the, the, my proof for why this can't be true, I have looked at the, a lot of these evidences about Petra and things like this, but the reason why this can't be true is because if you study our Islamic history, there is an early split, a major split, between the key uh, protagonists of Islam. You have the main body of Muslims, you have the Shia, you have the Khawarij. These main splits uh, occur very early on during the, the, the Khilafah al-Rashida, if you want to call it that, during Sayyidina Ali's time. You have this split. So... These sources, so the Shia have a rich tradition, which they have been passing down, passing down, and they hated the Bani Umayyah. They hated the rulers of Bani Umayyah. They hated, you know, all these kind of Umayyads, and they considered them to be oppressors, and, and they rebelled against them on certain occasions, whether it's going to be in the version of Zayn al-Abidin, or it's going to be um, beginning with Hussein, uh, an, or Zayn al-Abidin or Imam Zayd or whoever you want to say they, they had this struggle always going on and then you had the Khawarij who still continue till today the Ibadiyah and the Shia how can it be and they transmit these people transmit so many things so, so the Shia will say oh Bani Umayyah made this up they added this to the Salah they added that they, 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 all this exists how can it be that these three sources if we triangulate them, they agree that the Qibla was in Mecca. You see, it doesn't make any sense that they, because they would have definitely used that argument. They would have pounced on that argument. Can you imagine the imams of the Aimma of the Shia tradition? Imam Ja'far. He would have loved that to, to, to go on about why they, look, they've even changed the Qibla. The Qibla used to be in Petra, for example. But the fact that they agreed on this thing demonstrates that that couldn't have been fabricated. However, yes, some of the other pointers do need to be looked into and we need to start evaluating. Like I said, like, so for example, the trade thing, 
the thing like, okay, why were they being addressed as agriculturalists? And like I said, it makes sense now because they would have been bringing these other Arabs to debate the Prophet, these Jewish Arabs and Christian Arabs. Cool, I hope that makes sense about that. I know there's been a lot of uh, people who are looking into this. It really baffles them. But cool, let's take some other questions, people. Let's take some other questions. A lot of this serious... <laughs> a lot of this seriousness. Let's see what's bothering the Ummah. Why did most Malikia consider it a breaker of wudu? Uh, what is it? <laughs> what is it? Uh, somebody mentioned about the Abyssinian history. I think there are some documentation about Muslims. There is some documentation about Muslims that migrated. Uh, yes, there is. Uh, madhi. Madhi. Oh, Madhi. Acha-cha-cha-cha. <laughs> Our brother is... is, is <laughs> the, question, the question is about the, uh, the fluid... <laughs> It's a fluid question, people. Very fluid. <laughs> Does the madhi break? Madhi is a, a preseminal fluid, right? Does it break the wudu? Well, I mean, generally, the, the understanding of madhi is that it happens when a person is slightly excited. You know, <laughs> this one, this one, you know, slightly excited. You know, so at that stage, a person. You see, what I would say is the way Imam Malik. Uh, dealt with this and the Maliki method, but especially through the Iraqi transmission, is that look, any sexual activity, just repeat your wudu. So, because it's something that doesn't seem, it allows you to get back in, it's a ritual to get back into a spiritual state of mind, that's all. So, I would say that's fine, that makes sense. Um, and usually, these kind of things only happen. At that stage, unless it's just happening, <laughs> unless you're just walking around, it's happening, it's happening, people. <laughs> In which case, it's a medical issue. <laughs> you should uh, visit your doctor, you know, doctor. So, uh, in that case, it wouldn't break the wudu if it was a medical issue. Uh, and I don't consider these things to be impure, by the way. They're not impure, they just... Um, they do uh, break the wudu because of what they associated with, as in the whole, uh, the sexual experience. And what's interesting is, it's so, check this out, this is so <laughs> weird, right? It's almost impossible, almost, I mean, you do find it, but hardly, seldom discussed about women and this issue. So women having vaginal moisture um, or in that sense, kind of emitting a kind of uh, a fluid when they're excited, let's say, that <laughs> when the excitement, the no thick book generally touches up on that at all. I mean, they just don't mention it. It's like, like they don't even cover the issue. <laughs> Very few people have actually covered it. I mean, I know... Uh, Abu walid al-Baji, one of the Maliki legends, he had to be a Maliki, huh? Maliki legends, he discussed the issue, 
uh, and you'll have like Hattab mentions it in his uh, huge commentary in this. So you've got to sift through an entire commentary to find it. Um, but generally, they just don't di like. So people just don't know what to do. <laughs> and they're just like, well, the women can figure it out. And it's like, well, but when you're covering all these other things in the book, why are you covering that? And most thick books refuse to just cover it. Like they just don't. And that's a really strange thing. Uh, because I remember many years ago, during my studies, uh, <laughs> when I went on a search to find this, <laughs> you're like, Cha, does this exist in, in the books? <laughs> Let's find it. And it's impossible to, to find. And then eventually, I mean, you can track it if you, if you search real hard. But the point is that it's, but the issue would be, I feel that that wouldn't, in my understanding, that wouldn't break uh, wudu, vaginal uh, fluids or moisture, unless it was associated with sexual practice, and then it would be the same as for the men. Cool. Ah, fine. What, you naughty, naughty. <laughs> well, there's many a myths, many a myths. So what is going on? <laughs> so <laughs> you, 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 nutty, nutty. Right, so speaking of nutty, nutty, we've got uh, the saga continues, people, of Hasanat. Hasanat. I don't know if you guys have watched his, um, uh, his, uh, his replies, some of his replies on uh, Instagram. He's done some responses and back and forth with Muhammad Hijab. And Muhammad Hijab and Ali Da'wah are like, I mean, not at each other, but with him. They're going at it, at the neck. But the strange thing is only last year, Ali Da'wah made a video defending. <laughs> but I think uh, uh, the, 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 I suppose he says, he, he says, well, I don't know. I thought they were genuine back then. Cello. <laughs> See the problem is shall I tell you the problem? Shall I tell you? Yeah, your problem, What what is the heart of the problem? Let me pour it out for you people. Let me make it very clear. See the problem is you know holy people they set their standards superhuman. Right. And the truth is they're all corrupt. <laughs> they're all corrupt this is the truth so you know the, now some more than others arguably of course of course some more than others some are slightly less corrupt but they're all corrupt but some more than others now the problem is when you set your standards so high in front of the dunya dunya <laughs> dunya dunya <laughs> when you set your standards so high then it's only a matter of time before parda, you know, before this veil is is shattered. Parda hai, parda hai. And then when this veil is removed, toba, toba, toba. Oof. <laughs> the wrath. Damn, people, I have to say, people on social media are savage. They're like wild beasts. They're like the hills of eyes, kind of on social media. 
in real life they're like, oh, have a good day to you too. <laughs> and on social media they're like, ah, devour their meat. Ah. They're like, so people are ruthless, honestly. And I think this is this is the issue. Even these people, look, some I read somewhere there's, uh, you know, there was some comment. I don't know. I'm just reading what the comments are saying on social media. Somebody had said, because uh, Ali Dawa had made a video against these people and somebody said, well, there's a, an alleged documentary coming out against him. <laughs> and I thought, wow, this is, nobody is safe. Huh? There was the, the whole thing. It dragged in Mufti Meng, there's other scholars, all these people. Every, and the problem is what? The problem is this fake piety standards. If only people would just be real. You know, the, yeah. this reminds me of Momin Khan Momin. Allah, the legend. Momin Khan Momin was a contemporary of Ghalib people. The legend Ghalib. And he says, Umar kati hai ishke buta mein momin. Says, Umar kati hai that this life we've spent it, that this life we've spent in the love of these goddesses. <laughs> Obviously, he's speaking, Momin Khan Momin is speaking about beautiful women of his age. He says, we've spent this life in the love and, and, and the dedication to these goddesses. That Umar kati hai ishke buta mein momin Aakhari vakt mein kya khak musalma honge He says now that we've reached our final time Like hell are we going to become true Muslims <laughs> This people this was You know these I tell you these legends People might kind of say oh these poets and whatever But they had wisdom to them I tell you, they, these people, they knew, you know, they, they were kind of in their own way, just being at least trying to just be real as who they were, whether people agree with it or disagree with it, whether people, but the point is they weren't setting fake standards. So now Hasanat has come out and he said, well, look, so what? I was, uh... <laughs> and I got to say, I heard it, I watched his clip, uh, Today, I think it was, or was it yesterday? I watched his clip about, he said, look, those of you said I was an atheist. Uh, uh, I was an atheist. He said, and I was doing ruqya. He says, so what? There's a hadith in Bukhari that some of the companions said, we used to do ruqya as, as a kafir. I thought, wah, wah. <laughs> I like it. You know, I like the delil. <laughs> you know, now this thing, this spirit of his, I like. <laughs> but if it wasn't for the fake preaching before the fake uh, you know the whole <laughs> him and Ruksana ji the whole uh, you know oh couple girls oh, the fake all that drama if it wasn't for the, this side of his I'm starting to like now I'm thinking what <laughs> confidence huh? he goes so what if I was a kafir he goes so <laughs> there's a hadith in Bukhari <laughs> this is wah, wah. so it's really going back and forth and he said you see he was discussing Muhammad Hijab and he said um, 
and he refers to Muhammad Hijab as Muhammad Niqab. <laughs> and then he starts calling him Nikki. He says, you know, guys, leave Nikki alone. And, and he keeps referring to, because first I thought, who's he referring to as Nikki? Who's Nikki? Then I realized, Acha Acha, Nikki, he's, he means instead of Muhammad Hijab, Muhammad Niqab. <laughs> I thought, you, you, Harami. <laughs> And, and Muhammad Hijab, Muhammad Hijab's proper gunning for him. And Muhammad Hijab, to be fair, he's got too emotional, I think, over the thing. And, and he's really... But I feel that, look, in all honesty, the, the game that he's playing, this Hasanat, because my issue that I mentioned before very clearly was the, the extortion, the conning people, robbing money from people, Falsely using charities, taking 300,000 in one episode, taking uh, God knows how much other uh, funds. All of these things were the issue. Um, what he did in his personal life to me as a person doesn't bother me. I know it bothers other people. They're like, you know, what the hell? They're like, huh? They're like, menage et toi? <laughs> Triangle? <laughs> cha cha cha? The three gods, <laughs> three murti, the trinity. <laughs> but you see, to me, the issue was more that they broke people's trust in, in things like religion by conning them out of their wealth. And sometimes, you see, when people give money, they don't have money. You know, some bechara probably didn't have much money and saw the picture of that you know, that dying child that she had, Ruksana Ji, had on her post. And they probably thought, you know, what the hell, I'll give this money to that child. You know, because, and mashallah, may Allah reward all those people. May he shower them with infinite wealth. I mean, because people give, you know, there is goodness. You know, in the common Muslim, I'll tell you something. In the common Muslim out there, the non-practicing one, there is goodness in their heart. I, I, you can see it that they, you know, when they see some humanitarian cause, when they see these things, that's that's true iman, if you ask me. And these people, they dug into their pockets and gave them money. Little do they know that they're just paying for a few bottles. They're paying for their vodka and God knows what else, their business class tickets and their life of luxury and chilling. And, you know, they, they're paying for that. So this, this, yeah, this one, not nice, my friend. This one, taklif, taklif, taklif. So I feel that, that that's my issue with, uh, and I think the way Hasnat is playing it, I think he's just uh, stretching it out and he's hoping it's just going to die a death. And I think, this is my theory, this is me being a theorist, people. I think that his Ruksana Ji, his wife, uh, I don't know about the second wife, Sarah, but I definitely think about Umm Abdullah. I think she's not even in the UK. I think she legged it a while back. Yes, 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 yes. Because you see, I was thinking about this. I was thinking, hmm, you know, if. You know, like sometimes you put yourself in, in somebody else's shoes and you think, well, if I was in this person's shoes, what would I do now? And I thought that, look, it must be, it's definite 
because they were conning people. They definitely speculated this before it happened. Definitely, guarantee that last year, when everything is as smooth as you can imagine, they all, and, and I feel all of them, I feel that Sarah is just as implicated as, you know, she's complicit. Uh, I... I, I think maybe she's probably on the lesser end than the other two. The other two, I think, are the main. And Ruxana Umma Abdullah is 100% guilty. There is this, you know, what I don't like is this, oh, she's a woman, so, oh, 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 oh you know, oh. <laughs> you know, so she must be innocent. No, no, nothing, nothing, this one, not nice, you know. So she was definitely guilty. She was in on the con big style. Have you watched her clip about the fake acting when she's dressed up as a client and pretending to be possessed? It's going, Hi, Umar Abdullah. And this year's Oscar nominated performance goes to. <laughs> so I think that last year, this is my theory, check this out, people. I think that when things were going smooth, they must have discussed amongst themselves, what if we get caught? What would we do? Because that, think about it, that's a rational conversation to have. And I think at that time, they would have speculated contingency plans. And I think one of those contingency plans is to be set up abroad, maybe towards the Gulf somewhere. And I think as the hit the fan, his wife, Umar Abdullah, and kids are out of the country. I I definitely think that that's my speculation. I could be wrong. And you know that clip where she's making a video? That's, I don't believe that's her. That's definitely... How did her eyebrows change and the positioning of her eyes from the centre of her nose changed? <laughs> but the voice is her. I think the voice, she made a recording wherever she was and sent it over... And they just put it over, this uh, voiced over this, this other lady in a niqab making a recording. Um, I don't think she's in the UK. I think she's long gone. And I think the reason she's not open about it is because if they confess, then that would speed up the police investigation. Um, but I think right now the police, London Met, are probably just taking their time. They're probably thinking it's not a priority. But if they think she's a flight risk, they will, I'm pretty sure, speed up the priority. This is my cello, my brain at play <laughs> uh, uh, yeah I mean these people are definitely fraudulent but hey interesting interesting huh drama drama goes on so what else people what else is going on shall we take some other questions is there any is there something else to add to the masala section oh there was a, a bit of uh, masala I heard and that was that. Somebody asked about the story of Yunus salam in the whale. I have answered that already. So if you check YouTube, I will actually go through the story of Suleiman salam very quickly about did he neglect his prayers and did he waste wealth and stuff like that, which is a misunderstanding. But I'll explain that uh, briefly. Uh, explain. Abu Dawood narrated that the person who had put the evil eye on another would be ordered to do wudu. These hadith are not authentic. 
Um, and the issue is that there is no such thing as the evil eye. You have to understand, people, that, you know, this Rukia thing. Let's, let's speak a bit about Rukia. This Hasanat thing has been a wake-up call for Rukia. I'm going to be very clear, loud and proud when I say this. <laughs> I say it loud and proud. That the Muslim community is much themselves to blame. And they are just so ridiculously self-entrenched in these mythologies and superstitions. And look, demons don't possess people. Relax. <laughs> there is no such thing as jinn possession. It clashes with the Quran. It clashes with the Quran. The Quran teaches you that the shaitan himself will say on the Day of Judgment in Surah Ibrahim that he will say on the Day of Judgment that, that I all I did was just insinuated. I had no control. I had no control over you. That you know, all I did is the out. I just called you guys. I like invited you. Why? Hey, why didn't you do this? You did it. Now, if this is shaitan, he can't physically make anybody do anything. How can demons and shayateen come into you, make you do things, make you kill people, make you cause physical harm, make you do these? This is nonsense. It's against the Quran. And it's obviously dumb anyway. It's a dumb belief. But I mean, the point is, it's against the Quran to start off with. It's there isn't a single Sahih Sarih Hadith. Bring me one Hadith that is not being critiqued. One Hadith that has not been critiqued. One. <laughs> right. So if you bring me one Hadith, there isn't a single Hadith that hasn't been critiqued. They're either all made up, weak, or they've been critiqued. There isn't a single thing. So, how do you commute to Falaka? So, so, Robin is saying, I don't believe in jinn possessions, but I believe in evil eye of envy and jealousy. Right, now that, right, okay, now I want to say that, you see, there's no such thing as demonic possessions in the Quran. It goes against the Quran, it goes against the Sunnah. Um, now, there's no such thing as e as magic happening to people like that magic what we call magic is basically the inability of a certain people to explain a phenomenon so if you took technology to a certain people that were primitive to that it's magic that's all magic is magic is the inability of certain people to explain a phenomenon it doesn't mean that it's actually done through magical terms so in the past, what people did was either things like, which they still do today, like hypnosis, um, through the power of suggestion, through things like this, which is still done today. People do things like hypnosis and things like that, power of suggestion. That was one. There were three angles for magic in the past. Uh, that was one. The other angle was using chemicals and potions to influence things. So, for example, using natural minerals that are mood stabilizers, like lithium, let's say. People using certain things that contain natural, and they would say, give this person this to drink and he'll become a better person. And because his mood stabilized, he became a better person and therefore it's magic. 
things like this, for example, so things which are actual, uh, they cause, there was an actual causative element. And the third was simply trickery and sleight of hand, that people tricked people, like the great Indian rope trick. It was a trick, but to the onlooker, it was perceived as magic. So this is all magic is. There is no actual hocus pocus like I pick up a, a doll, a voodoo doll, and I start stabbing it with pins and you over there start doing your break dance. And it doesn't work like that. This, this is all nonsense. Okay, it does not exist. And neither did the prophet ever have magic done on him. That is so silly and ridiculous. Um, once again, clashes with the Quran and disrespects our prophet. That, you know, so, so that's to clarify the magic end. As far as the evil eye is concerned, the evil eye simply means it's a synonym for envy. All right. Now, people use it culturally. And yes, sometimes people, because they're envious of something, they may act out in a certain way to harm a person. But they may not even want to harm the person, but subconsciously they become envious. But they actually act out. Right. What they don't do is it's not. So as if you mean by envy and jealousy, that's correct. That's fine. If you mean by it, like I just look at somebody and go evil eye, evil eye, evil eye. And that guy gets cancer. <laughs> right. That's not. The evil eye, right? That just means that you're lacking in intellect. Right, there's no, because that, that, that's not how cancer is caused. That's not how, oh, he looked at this house and the house dilapidated. Oh, he looked at his car and thought, oh, I like his car. And then the guy had a car accident. This, although there could be certain, you see, there could be other links. So, for example, a person, like, if there was direct communication, like, imagine, I give you an example. Imagine somebody said uh, they praised something. Like imagine you had a, like you're driving a flashy car and somebody said, wow, that's such an expensive car. Now, when they say that, you become conscientious about the car. Now, because you've become conscientious, you're not driving um, subconsciously like you normally would. You're driving very conscientiously and you may become nervous. And because you're nervous, you end up crashing the car. Now that could happen and that these kind of things do happen, but that's not because the person looked at you and gave these magic rays and destroyed your car, but that's because it actually had an impact by you reacting. So these kind of things do happen. Okay, so I hope that gives some explanation. Yar, what else is going on? Let's... Hmm... <clears throat> And in abandoned houses, there is no, you know, Muslims seriously need to grow up with all these uh, demonic possessions and um, magic. And But the problem is people won't let go. The truth is that people just will not let go. It doesn't matter. Like you say, whatever you want to people, they just will not let go. And they get offended that how dare you, <laughs> how dare you say magic does not exist. <laughs> Right. And, and the truth is that, you know, all these guys that send all these gins and do all these magic hocus pocus, they're always broke. I mean, like they're always themselves begging for money. 
like the most powerful ones in Pakistan and India and Bangladesh and those countries, they're, they're incredibly poor. Like if, if you had all this power at your disposal, I mean, if I had jinns working for me, I'd be loving it. <laughs> then you'd see the true meaning of corruption. <laughs> Let's just be honest. See, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So if I had jinn at my disposal, boy, <laughs> then people would regret it. <laughs> so this is the thing. So these kind of things don't really happen. Somebody said, فِي الْبَيَانِ وَالتَّحْسِيلِ وَقَدْ سُنِعَ لِرَسُولَ صلى الله عليه وسلم سِحْرٌ فَلَمْ يَعْرِفُهَا تَأَقْبَرَتْهُ الشَّاتِ Now, you see, first of all, there's many transmissions sometimes, people transmitting from Imam Malik and from other people. Uh, Imam Malik, in some narrations, they, he, he, he doesn't seem to buy into all of this. And other, other narrations, he doesn't normally comment about this magic thing. Bayan wa Tahsil, so far from what I just read there, I haven't read that narration, but I'll check it up. It's saying that, look, the Prophet had magic done onto him and he didn't know until a sheep told him. A sheep. I mean, that just sounds ridiculous in and of itself. A sheep came and told the Prophet of God. So the Prophet of God himself is so, you know, defenseless that a sheep can figure it out and he can't figure it out. You know, I mean, they, these kind of things are stupid and they're disrespectful to the Prophet of God. And it's embarrassing that Muslims say these things. And it's even worse that they actually say them aloud. <laughs> at, at best, just say it in your mind. <laughs> I mean, don't say these things out loud. They sound dumb. Now, look, first of all, I don't believe Imam Malik really got involved in that kind of a debate. And a lot of his fatawa seem to contradict these things. As Ibn Ashur, the great Maliki legend, writes that, look, these things don't have a reality. But even if, even if you found a narration, let's just say you found a narration from Imam Malik that said it. Let's say. And Imam Malik is not God. You know, just because Imam Malik was a person who did the best he could in his day and age, which was 1200 years ago. So if you're holding somebody to account for 1200 years ago using the best of his knowledge and maybe he thought look okay maybe like first of all i'm not sure this narration is even true but let's take it at face value and assume it's true even if imam malik thought look okay maybe these things exist i don't know and maybe so now because that person said maybe 1200 years ago you feel that i know let's build a religion based on <laughs> What, you know, some person who generally did the best he could. You know, so I feel, you know, and they don't, and the interesting thing is that it's not like they take from Imam Malik and other things. <laughs> you know, all the things that Imam Malik would say that, oh, you reject the hadith. It's not like they take his style there. They don't seem to take his style in that. All these other things that Imam Malik did that were very controversial for other people. They don't take him in that. 
and they find, let's say, some odd narration transmitted a few hundred years after him uh, that he said this. And maybe, I'm not denying, I haven't come across that, but even if he said it, so what? You know, we don't, like I said before, I do not blindly follow the words of men. Others are welcome to do so. I will weigh up their words in reason. And because at the end of the day, I'm answerable for me. I have to, does it make sense to me? Am I just blindly following people? I love Imam Malik and he's one of my heroes. And I do follow his fiqh, I follow his principles. But it doesn't mean that I blindly follow him just for the sake of him being him. And Imam Malik wouldn't have wanted me or anybody to blindly follow him. In fact, it's it's transmitted that even, you see, Eve, he would say these things himself. That And this is how his teachers taught him. So, you know, Imam Malik himself, when he was with one of his teachers and Abdul Aziz ibn Abi Salma was with him and they would take classes. And then Imam Malik said to the teacher, oh, that how come, you know, you say certain things to me in front of me and sometimes you don't say them in front of him or you don't say. And the person, and he said to Imam Malik, that's because with you, I know you will weigh what I say and you won't blindly accept it. So I think that's uh, quite important. How to understand how to understand risk sustenance according to Islam. Did Harut and Marut teach magic to the people of Babylon? Babylon! Alright. Right, no, I don't think it does mention the Quran does mention that these two figures, Harut and Marut, and most likely they were probably two rulers. Um who were deemed to be pious. They weren't angels, but people referred to them as like angels. This is what many people, so if you read the Tafasir of Ibn Ashur and other people, this is what they explain, that they weren't actually angels, uh, but they people used to call them angels because they thought that's how they you know, were inspired by these people. Um, and they taught certain techniques. Now, these techniques go back to this thing. It doesn't say anywhere they taught them a magic that was like how we you're picturing magic like I don't know Harry Potter magic it just says that they taught people how you can split people up and cause enmity they can split up a couple how like think about it people do it today the, 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 the kind of tactics the kind of politics the, the gameplay that people use to split people up and this is untrained people do it you know they gossip here gossip there set people up do this and that's the unqualified <laughs> uh, guy doing that or girl doing that imagine if you were skilled at it and and you then and you were around the people who weren't skilled but you taught them the art of persuasion allah 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 the art of persuasion people it's quite a unique art who do you think is closest to you in your fiqh and theology? Well, in fiqh, I am generally Maliki, al-Madhab. Uh, so I do follow the school of Medina. And in uh, theology, I mean, I follow. Uh, I, uh, you know, I've been trained in Ash'ari thinking, but I don't blindly follow it. I, I take what makes sense uh, and I don't take the parts that don't make sense. I do also, I am also influenced by people like Ibn Rushd, the great Maliki legend. Um, of Muslim Spain, the philosopher, I'm influenced by him. 
uh, as in I like, when I say I'm influenced, as in I like the way he thinks uh, on certain things. He questions the Ash'aris about certain things. So I don't blindly follow people in faith, uh, as in in creed, because to say I believe this, 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 that's stupid. Because then you don't believe it. You're just, it's just dogma. You're just saying it because the person's telling you to say it. Right, somebody seems to be asking quite a few questions on wudu. Dan Harden. Alright. Wait there, let me pour a drink for myself. If you pass wind... Huh? Wait there, wait there. If you pass wind near the end of wudu whilst washing your feet... You made it all the way to the feet, to washing the feet. You made it that far. <laughs> and then the wudu betrayed you. <laughs> so it's like the wind was like, watch, watch, just watch this. Wait till he gets right to that part. Then it was like, ah. <laughs> ah that must be quite incredibly annoying. <laughs> So if you reach the end whilst washing your feet, do you need to do wudu again? Oof, 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 oof. The tragedies. I have to say, I think, you know, this wudu and and passing wind has become such a... I think it's become a kind of a habitual <laughs> tragedy for Muslims. Because I think so many Muslims hold in. Then they they gas. They're like, oh, I can't let my wudu break. <laughs> so they have so much trapped. Uh, so I think this uh, this one big problem, you know, this one. <laughs> so I think, yeah, I mean, yes, you would have to repeat your wudu. <laughs> so leave this hasanat. Who cares? Who cares? I, I no care. Harden you tosser. Huh? What what the hell is going on? <laughs> Whoa, what's going on in the questions? Yeah, <laughs> ¿Qué está pasando? Deep questions coming out. Let's take some deep questions, people. What's going on? Let's take some deep. Let's do some rapid round. Yeah, let's do a rapid round of questions. I hear that my good friend... Uh, uh, Molana Sheikh Abdurrahim Limbada Sahib Bada Bada. I hear he shared a fatwa on his uh, Facebook page. Later on, I hear he took it down. Shared a fatwa saying you can't uh, contribute to organ donation. Hi, hi, Bada 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 Toher Bada Ham Zeher Vipi Jain Katil. Shart ye ke hame bahome samhale. Hi, hi, hi. Bada means uh, alcohol. But bada alcohol. I'll even drink poison. With the condition that somebody takes me into their arms. Allah, Allah, Allah. Right, so I hear that Limbada Sahib, Damat Barkat Umul Aliya, Shri, Shri, Shri Sheikh. 
Limbada Sahib. I hear he gave, he was kind of encouraging that because from next year, I think April 2020, there is going to be, uh, it is going to be legislation that all people in England are automatically opted in on donation and they have an opportunity to opt out. I personally encourage all Muslims do not opt out. It's very important that, uh, you know, with organ donations and things like this. And I've spoken about that in the past. And there are many people, uh, including uh, Mufti Maravia, who's done a lot of research on it. It is online, his fatwa, including Dr. Mansoor, who's done a lot, and a few other people. And you can find that. But this scaremongering of, like, telling people, oh, my God, this is haram, opt out, opt out. This is a conspiracy of the West. Conspiracy, conspiracy. <laughs> what conspiracy? You know, when it comes to taking an organ, not in, not in that way, nutty, nutty. I don't mean in the madrasa way, taking an organ. <laughs> Old habits die hard. But I mean, when it comes to receiving, you know, <laughs> receiving an organ, I think that these, obviously, these people will be first. So... Uh, right, so, but I heard my good friend Sheikh Limbada Ji was sharing that fatwa. Limbada Ji, Bazaj, oh, Baz. <laughs> this, this one not nice, my friend. <laughs> this one make me once again want to talk to you. You know, <laughs> I think you know someday, Mufti, uh, not Mufti, Sheikh Limbada Ji should come down and share a cup of tea with me. <laughs> I think we could this could be the beginning of a beautiful beautiful friendship you know <laughs> what is it do bhai ek pyale mein chai peenge do bhai ek pyale somebody said what is uh, do you like and read the poetry of uh bulla shah bulla shah is an amazing epic Poet, I do like some of it. I haven't read so much, but some of it I have read. It is amazing. I do, I do love it. Cha, Muhammad Tawseef, doing it. Ah, Urfan, doing it, doing it. Ahlan wa sahlan. Let's take some rapid round questions, people. Rapid. Let's bring up the speed. These are all. Who are the enemies of Islam? Can you give your thoughts? Uh, I've already spoken a bit about the whole thing. What do you... Where's mm, mm, an interesting... Interesting question. Uh, Persian poetry. Some of the old Persian poetry I do love. The uh, I, I seem to understand a lot of the old... I don't know about the recent, but you know the old uh, subcontinent... Uh, scholars what had written like Amir Khusro and which they sing in Qawali and stuff like this um, I do I, I really I seem to understand some of it <laughs> or I think I'm understanding it <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what the hell they're actually writing but are the prophets alive in their graves was there 360 idols in Kaaba I don't think there were 360 idols like that, but I think there were a lot of maybe altars and things, sacrifices and stuff like that. And there were a lot of gods. I think 360 might be exaggerated. Um, Devdas poetry. Hi, hi, hi. Devdas, gee. 
कौन कम वक्त बर्दाश्त करने के लिए पीता है अल्लाह अल्लाह दिस इज नॉट एल्कोहल पीपल सम पीपल सेट अस्तफरला यू नो दिस मुफ्ती अल्कोहल ऑन इज यार कहा क्या कहें ये दुनिया वालों को जो आखिरी सांस पर भी एतराज करते इब्राहिम तो आई वॉज नॉट टू मेक हिस हाउस लाइन इज इट ओके टू डिग अप द प्रॉफिट बॉडी टू चेक इफ इट्स रॉट इट Aiden Hash <laughs> What the hell what on earth are you smoking lay off the drugs lay off the drugs Look the people who people who pass from this world they are in a different realm they are no longer in this realm okay nobody is in this realm once they pass away that's it that's the way the world works so Mufti sahab can you do a drunk live <laughs> acha while doing miran miran ghalib the 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 dons the legends you know th- these people are my heroes you know i was reading uh, uh, this poem of mir i'll share it probably one of these days on insta really you know it's one of those heartwarming poets heartwarming poems you read it and he says he says in it meer he addresses himself obviously meer hum milkar bahut khush hue tumse pyare allah meer hum milkar bahut khush hue tumse pyare is kharabe mein meri jaan tum aabad raho allah 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 it's it's such a kind of like a heart melting kind of poem it's it's very simple i mean this one's not corrupt or anything he just says he addresses himself and he says that meer hum milkar bahut khush hue tumse pyare that that he calls him kind of like endearment pyare like my love he says that after meeting you i've been i'm very happy that i've met you my love to himself he says to this is hashtag self love and he says is kharabe mein in this ruins in this world of ruins tum abad raho that meri jaan tum so he says is kharabe mein meri jaan tum abad raho that may you forever prosper my dear in this world of ruins and it's something that really wow like you know you read it and it just you think wah it is amazing the parallels the contrast between like the sense of hope the sense of despair the sense of how the endearment of his himself to himself but yet at the same time he's only just met himself like you know the meer hum milkar tumse bahut khush hue pyar that i've only just met you in some ways that we never truly even get to know ourselves but yet 
that there is this connection, this yearning, that may you forever prosper. That it's just amazing. Honestly, I, when I read this kind of poetry, it I, I, I really, I get, it takes me in a different world, you know. It's like I'm, it's my kind of high, basically. حیرت ہوئی غالب تمہیں مسجد میں دیکھ کر ایسا بھی کیا ہوا کہ خدا یاد آ گیا یہ خرابے اس خرابے میں میری جان تم آباد رہو واہ واہ میری جان واہ You know, that reminds me, speaking of poem, I'll give you another poem. <clears throat> and, and I think we can maybe wrap up. Uh, on a similar note, contrasting despair and hope and things like that, you have Momin Khan Momin again. You know, our legend who said, Umar kati hai ishke botame Momin. That we've spent our lives loving these goddesses. <laughs> these beautiful goddesses. That these women and he says that what's the point <laughs> of trying to become Muslim now <laughs> but what he means by that is becoming a like can you actually become sincere at this stage but he has this other poem which uh, I've said that one already but he has this one where once again it's an amazing one which really touches me he says that tum hamare kisi that you would like you did not end up being mine in any capacity says otherwise what is impossible in this world of possibilities Allah like look Look at the silver lining at the same time. Like, there's the despair, the dark cloud of like you, there's like you could, you know, you would not mine in any capacity. Like, despair. But then at the same time, this thing of like, Varna dunya me kya nahi hota. You know, what is truly impossible in this world of possibilities? That everything can be achieved in this world. That it's like, wow. What enthusiasm, what optimism. But then at the same time, interwoven with realism. In, yet, in any capacity, I didn't manage to obtain you. This, ah, heart crushing. Oh, I am Momin Khan Momin. Right, honestly, these people, this is why I advise people to really uh, look into uh, things like poetry. Right, okay, let's take one, two questions and then who are the blowers of the... Who are the... Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh? <laughs> oh, there's more to the question. <laughs> who are the blowers? I thought... Yeah, yeah. company company? Is there a hotline after that? <laughs> are you advertising on my life? Huh? Let me just jot down the number. <laughs> right so 
I think there's more to that question. Who are the blowers? <laughs> are you going to name and shame? Have you no decency? Are they not the creatures of God as well? <laughs> right, who are the... Let me open this question up. Who are the blowers of the knots? Acha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha. He's talking about... <laughs> Uh, who are the blowers of the knots in the in the surah? Who's being referred to as those women who are practicing some kind of uh, alleged witchcraft or superstition? So th that doesn't mean it had a reality to it. So if you read the entire surah, Allah is constantly saying, "Look, I seek refuge in the dark." What does the dark do? Dark doesn't harm you, but it's by association, and I seek refuge. In the women who blow on knots, what do the knots do? Nothing, but by association, the superstition, the gossip, the evil culture of damnation, all of these false taboos, this shirki kind of um, backdrop, all of that. And then Allah says, I seek refuge in the envious when he envies. What does envy do to you? It doesn't do anything, but by association, the acting out. It was a religious question after all. <laughs> I thought it was, uh, you were probably thinking, MashaAllah, uh, people seem very tired on this. Why don't I inspire them with, <laughs> with some leisurely activity? <laughs> right, so. Hina, <laughs> uh, Tariq, oh my God, I'm late. How dizzy am I? <laughs> <laughs> You're well late, Hena. You're well late. Uh, who are the Fuqahal Amsar who are mentioned in the Maliki books? Which Fuqahal Amsar are you talking about? Are you talking about the general? I mean, there's so many scholars mentioned in the books. Pavesa rahe shajar se umid. Piyasa rahe shajar se umid bahar rak. Chahe char rak. Famous early. Oh, this reminds me of a mas'ala. I've got to read a mas'ala. Let's let's read this mas'ala and then we'll call it a we'll call it a night, people. So you know, some Muslim, Muslims they go through this issue of halala, which is nonsense, by the way. And I have mentioned that if you ever end up stuck in the three talaq mas'ala, you do not need to do halala. Okay, if you want to get back together. I believe there's always a way that, you know, the, the talaq was given in ignorance, it was given in one go, there's a lot of capacity in the sharia, you don't need to go <laughs> semi-pimp your wife out for, <laughs> you know, you don't need to do that just to under some guilt of religious, uh, some kind of, that this is what God wants. <laughs> God wants, uski band bajado. God wants <laughs> you to get done over. It's like, what? <laughs> Why does he want that? Now, trust me, he does. <laughs> so in the past, the problem was when they would get the wife married off to, to some new guy who, mind you, <laughs> that would be, my, that's my career dream. <laughs> to become a halala expert. I just want <laughs> Uh, yeah, yes, so <laughs> yes, yes, come, come this way, yes, so 
Mademoiselle, <laughs> we have this problem. Okay, there's no, no, no problem this one. <laughs> Where you just walk around all day in a robe and you're like, you're like an expert, you're a senior consultant. <laughs> Only the senior consultants walk around in the robe. <laughs> that's, that's, that's my dream, <laughs> my dream job. How, how many nuffle do I have to pray? This Niaz Bandor Niaz. Alright, so the the thing is now coming to this, right, so people had an issue. They used to think that oh if I uh let's say I get this guy married temporarily to my wife, he's gonna divorce her obviously. After he does the <laughs> after he 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 has the intimacy, right? So but what if he gets hooked to her? What if he's like, whoa, that was something. <laughs> I've been living in darkness all my life. This is where paradise was. <laughs> right, so what if he says, no way am I divorcing her? So, which does happen. So now in that situation, he would be stuck. So I've heard of some Maulanas that they've done the halala and then they've said, when the guy is come and he said, Mulvi Saab, uh, will you now give my wife a talaq? He said, I would, but she's not doing anything wrong and giving a talaq just like this is astaghfirullah. Allah doesn't like this, these things. <laughs> and the angels are like, huh? Acha? Oh, is it all about achas? And now it's about God. <laughs> so you have some of these Molanas that then get stuck. Like they, they, I mean, they don't get stuck. They stay stuck. They say, uh, well, I'm really liking this one. Why should I leave her? So now <clears throat> some of the previous in, in the medieval times, some of the Shafi'iyah came out with a, a, a solution. They said, This is in the Mukhtasar Qawaid Zarakshi or Zarkashi, you can say in both ways. This is a loophole in the getting the halala and nikah done. He says, And he says, The way you got to do it, he says, I'm going to tell you how to do this. Uh, he says, that let him buy a slave, <laughs> a small slave, not like a macho. Oh, oh, oh. He goes, <laughs> not like some kind of like bodybuilding slave. He says, but let him buy a small, weak, puny slave, right? So, what you minhu, and let him marry his wife off to his slave. Biridaha, obviously she she has to agree to it. <laughs> he says, that then he grabs hold of the small slave's penis and he enters it into the, he, he, he penetrates it into the vagina and then once that's done, he then splits them. He's like, hey, that's enough. <laughs> he's like, 
It's like, whoa, 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 that was one second too much there. All right, he pulls it back out. And then what he does is he sells the slave immediately. And by selling the slave, it says, uh, The nikah automatically breaks. And with it, he's managed to have the halala. And he's managed to save the situation from this guy becoming obsessed with his wife and keeping her. <laughs> Imagine that poor slave. That, that slave would just be incredibly confused. Like, what, what just happened here? <laughs> like, first I, they bought me and they brought me into this place. And then, then the guys kind of pulled my pants down and holding my... <laughs> then I'm thinking, right, okay, I don't really bat that way. <laughs> and then he's putting it into his own wife. And then I'm thinking, okay, this is getting interesting. <laughs> and then he's getting all jealous and pushing me away. Like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> I'm thinking, yeah, <laughs> drama why how do i uh, how how do i deal with this world of 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 toba admi jieto jiekesi this world is too much this world is too much so these were some of the as you can see there that was proper um uh, that was <laughs> like newton level uh, that was proper like the muslim genius of the of the faqih of the scholar at his genius level, uh, trying to figure out faqih means a scholar, although it sounds here, it probably makes sense like faqih. <laughs> he was using all, that was his brain on full capacity, that I've got a solution for you guys. Finally, I've cracked it. <laughs> guys, with that, let's wrap this up, inshallah. It's been awesome. Uh, no, this is actually in the book. This is in... Uh, Mukhtasar Qawaid Zarakshi. So Badruddin Zarkashi is a famous Shafi'i scholar, and this is in the Mukhtasar of the Qawaid. It's actually a Shafi'i fit book, and they came up with it. And he says this is an amazing solution loophole I've we've discovered, lads. <laughs> lads. <laughs> right, guys, it's been awesome uh, having you all on here, taking your questions, sharing the thoughts, take very good care of yourselves, people. If you do want to reach out to me, do reach out to me, do, uh, check out my videos on YouTube, like them, subscribe, you know, you don't need to be this, this tight-fisted, you know, this relax, you know, this, there's no harm in pressing like, uh, just, just hit it, man, hit it, huh, hit like, hit like, hit like, hit like, so, other than that, people, take very good care of yourselves. Somebody just asked about the earring. I answer it at the beginning of tonight's episode. So reverse, rewind, have a listen. Inshallah, take very good care of yourselves. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh.